Okay, grab your Bible again. We're looking at Psalm 33. God speaks it to us. We want him to work by his spirit as we hear his word. So let's ask him again to be at work in us. Heavenly Father, please do uh, shape and tune our heads and hearts as we hear your word. Uh, Please help us to see reality and so respond to you as you are and as we ought. In the Lord Jesus, amen. Who were you thinking about as we sang earlier? Uh, Who do you think about when we sing on Sundays? Who are you singing to? God might seem like the obvious answer, Father, Son, Spirit, and I hope that that is who you're thinking about, uh, thinking about whichever person or persons of the Trinity that the songs put our focus on. But not just about them. Occasionally we'll think about saints we have never known, I quite like that line, um, but I reckon we should always be thinking about the others in the room. Singing to God, but knowing that we're listening. Or listening to what we're together singing to God. Or just straight out singing to us and listening to what we're singing to you. Often the mix of songs we sing, or even within songs we sing, words are sung both horizontally to each other and sung vertically to God. But always with one another. So as we have a look at this psalm, I think it's helpful to think, who's singing to who? Who's singing to who? Well, I'm going to show you, could have asked you to prepare, but 21 of these 22 verses are spoken to the righteous and the upright. Verse 1 names them, calls them righteous and upright. Uh, Almost all of the psalm is spoken across to them, rather than up to God. There are 21 verses spoken to other people in the room. Then just one verse, the last verse, spoken to the living, true, and holy God. We saw last week how David uses the word righteous and what he means when he says upright. David speaks to the righteous and upright in the last verse of Psalm 32. Glance back to Psalm 32. David speaks to the righteous and upright. In verse 10, they're the ones who trust in the Lord. And trusting in the Lord in Psalm 32 is not hiding my sin from myself and not hiding it from God. It's trusting him by telling him the things that he could count against me and trusting that he won't. Trusting him to forgive. So although righteous and upright, I've got to have some flavor of doing the right thing, doing what God's good commands say, David has just been speaking to the righteous and the upright, meaning God's forgiven people. Psalm 32 finished by saying to them, see how good God is. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice that he forgives you. Rejoice in God who covered your sin. 
Shout for joy in the presence of the people God has saved. Now in Psalm 33, he speaks to them, but not just to them. He gets them speaking to one another. Glance at verse 20. Our soul, he is our, for our heart, because we, they are speaking. Most of the psalm is God's forgiven people speaking to one another and hearing one another. It gives us words about God to speak to one another's heads and hearts. It gives us words to call one another to praise him, to tell one another why we should praise him. It gives us words to declare our confidence to one another and then to speak our trust to God in whom we trust. Now, if you're curious but not yet committed, it's a great psalm to help you see why we think God is worthy, why we think you should trust him. So let's work through it. Uh, the first few verses call us to praise and honor, give praise and honor to him with music and enthusiasm, I think. Verse 1 uh, says, praise befits the righteous. It's right. It's appropriate. It would be very strange for God's forgiven people not to praise him. So shout for joy. So praise, give thanks, make melodies, sing, play skillfully, shout loudly. Verses 1 to 3 call on the righteous and upright, God's forgiven people, musicians and singers, to do what fits the reality of who God is, to praise and honor the Lord. He is worthy, and our enjoyment of his perfections expands as we announce them, as we thank him, as we point one another to him and say, see how good and great and gracious and glorious our God is. As he speaks in Acts, we see him more clearly. Uh, That line in verse 3 where it says, sing a new song. It's about singing a song which fits the rescue. New songs in the Bible, they come in response to a great salvation event that God has done. They're sung by God's people after he rescues them. They're sung to celebrate the rescue, and they're sung with joy in the rescuer. In the Old Testament, often the rescue is a military victory uh, with, the other, with the enemy defeated. Uh, you'll hear that as we read this psalm. But we'll also go where the psalm points, where the Old Testament points. To the new song, new song sung in heaven to celebrate the great rescue from sin and death and judgment. New songs aren't just new They're responses to fresh sight of who God is. They're responses to fresh sight of who God is by seeing him rescue. They're songs which give us words to grow into as they focus our heads and hearts on the Lord who saves. It's funny though, because verse 3 says, Sing to the Lord. But then verses 4 to 21 are spoken to us. 
Now, I think that's because joy, joy-filled and enthusiastic praise doesn't primarily come because there's a great tune. It comes out of heads and hearts that see God's glory and goodness and grace and greatness. Joy-filled, enthusiastic praise doesn't come primarily because of a good tune. It comes because of what our heads, our hearts say of who God is. So most of this psalm is words about God to speak to one another, to hear from one another. Verses 4 to 19 are reasons to praise the Lord. Reasons to hear from us, reasons to speak to us. Praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. So verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his works are done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Everything God does is right and true and faithful to who he is. With God being true to who he is, is a good thing. Our problem is that we keep being true to ourselves. We make plans, we decide what would be best, and then we do something entirely different. There are people in the world who we we want to cause no harm, but we hurt even those we love the most. Many of our best desires are longings to stop being true to ourselves. We'd love to love what's best, but we just keep being authentic. Something less keeps surfacing, but not with God. He is always authentic. But with God being authentic, he needs no reshaping. He loves righteousness and justice. So the earth is full of his steadfast love, his hesed, his committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast love. The earth is made with generosity and order and beauty. It's full of resources that we need. It is predictable in a way which allows us to live well in it. Uh, There's unnecessary beauty and flavor and fragrance. And we have the senses to enjoy and experience it. Made with generosity and order and beauty, the created world has righteousness and justice woven into it. It's made good. There's a good way of living in it. It's living in line with the way that God has designed it and designed us to live in it. It's a good world full of God's good design. Because six, verse 6, God made it. It didn't just happen. Everything exists because God spoke it into existence. For him, creating numberless skies is as easy as breathing out a word. Not only did he make it easily, he interacts with it easily. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Now, It's a funny picture, isn't it? The waters of the sea being gathered in a heap. The the writer knows that water doesn't stack. 
that you can't put an enormous volume of the deeps of the ocean uh, into into rooms designed to keep cash, storehouses. Sure, sure, I guess we could think think it out and think, well, I guess God could make a stack of water by freezing it and having lots of blocks that he stacks up. Or he could waterproof the, the storehouse rooms and close the door and fill them up from the top. But there's no need to think about that because the, the psalmist isn't writing science here. He's giving us words to help us begin to grasp and understand God's complete control of all that he has made. But it's not just control. It's his control as he cares for his people. When Moses sang a new song after the Lord brought Israel through the Red Sea, he described it as waters piled up. Yes, the verse. Waters piled up, floods stood in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The psalm writer's using some of those words. The Lord is in absolute control of all that he has made and he controls it for the good of his people. When you see him, when you truly begin to see his might and power and righteousness, the only honest response to him is verse 8. To be in fear of him. To stand in awe of the one who spoke the universe into existence who speaks to control things which are far beyond our control. Verses 6 to 9, they focus on God's command and control of the physical things of the world. Verses 10 10 and 12 focus on His command and control when people are involved. Way back in Psalm 2, um, He spoke about kings and nations plotting and planning against the Lord and His anointed. I think when we hear nations, we need to think that sort of thing. Verse 10 doesn't mention nations. doesn't mention them planning with a neutral tone. It assumes opposition. Egypt, Philistia, Syria, Babylon plotting against Israel. The next bit in uh, Moses' new song is about when the nation Israel pursued... Sorry, what? The next bit in Moses' new song is about when Egypt pursued Israel between the waters of the sea stacked up in heaps. Their plan was to overtake and to destroy Israel. But the Lord blew the sea and it covered them and they sank. Psalm 33 verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord, it stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You see the contrast. The Lord's plans stand forever. Generation after generation after generation, his plans never fail. But every plan that opposes him comes to nothing. Over and over and over, the Old Testament shows us nations thinking they come in might and victory over the Lord. But God's prophets explain that they come by the Lord's permission. Their victory will last a generation or two, 
or three and a half. Those proud nations only do what God has given them to do. And they only do it for as long as the living, true, and holy God allows them to do it. The nations came thinking that their gods, their idols gave them victory. But their gods cannot help. Verse 12, the nation whose God is the Lord is blessed. The people whom he has chosen are as his heritage. They're the ones whose life is as good as it could possibly be. As good as the creator intended it to be. Truly blessed. God's people live in God's place under his rule and blessing. They won't be pushed out because their God doesn't just rule them. He rules everything. He rules everyone, everywhere. Verse 13 shows us that. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. There are no edges to God's rule. He rules everyone, everywhere. From his throne in heaven, he sees and rules all the humans, every one of us and every one of them. Verse 15, he made all the humans, he sees all our actions. It says there that he fashions the hearts of them all. The word fashions is, or forming uh, is saying he made them. Same word that Genesis 2 uses to, when it talks about making the humans. It's about him making our minds as well as our bodies. I, I'm pausing on this because I want to be clear that it's not talking about him fashioning, forming, shaping our thoughts to go this way and then that way, is that he made our minds. He sees and knows every thought and action is what the writer's driving at. So unlike his human rivals, the Lord God makes his plans with the benefit of knowing everything. He has no local bias. No ignorance about what others are planning. No uncertainty. His complete knowledge and his absolute control mean that his plans always stand. Mean that no human actions are ultimately decisive. Not even the actions of the people who have the most power. Verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. See the contrast. Verses 13 to 15, the Lord on his throne, looking down and seeing everyone. Verse 16, 17, even the most powerful people he looks down on can't rise up to achieve their plan. They can't do it for themselves. And they can't do it for you. Then the money shot, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. People who see things as they really are, they realize the rich and powerful, they have influence but not influence over what ultimately matters. The biggest things they do will fade. 
It may last a lifetime or a bit longer, but not much longer. The Lord's plans stand because they are based on his perfect knowledge, his complete control, his committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast love. His good plan is to watch over everyone who treats him as God. Everyone who confidently expects him to deliver on his promises. His plan is to save and care for them in life and in death. And he's able to do it. So Father Sam has put words on our lips and in our ears to speak to one another, to hear from each other. To call one another to praise the Lord, to tell one another why, that the Lord is faithful and creator and sovereign, that he's king who is able to care for everyone who entrusts themselves to him. That's why verses 1 to 3 get us calling to one another and saying, praise the Lord. That's the same sight of God that gets us declaring our trust in him to one another. Verses 20 and 21 saying to each other, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. So when we see Him clearly, we wait patiently. We're confident that He's able to help. We're glad that He will help. Because we know what He's like. Because we know His holy name. He is the Lord Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's worthy of our trust. And it does our souls good to hear one another declaring our trust in him. So verse 20, 21, say that. Speak it to one another. And verse 21, finally, words to pray to the Lord and hear one another praying. Verse 22, it's speaking that same trust, that same trust to the, it speak, spoken to the Lord. And again, it's not each of us on our own speaking to God. It's us together speaking our trust in God to him. It's us together praying, save us who trust you. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. It's us calling on the Lord to come through on his promised commitment, on his loyal, faithful love that we speak to him asking him to act for us and hearing one another pray it. Now the point of the psalm obviously isn't to say to you simply uh, sing to God or to one another but always consciously listening to one another and knowing you're being listened to. Knowing you're surrounded by voices of men, women and children who you know who Trust the same Savior. It's not the key point, but you do see that that's what's going on in it. And I want to encourage you to tune in and to think about 
what you're saying and to whom you're saying it as we sing and who you're singing it with to hear us singing what you're singing to hear us singing it to you when they're words that we're speaking to each other to hear us praying to God as together we join to speak our trust I want to finish uh, by pulling on that new song thread. It's a thread that runs into the New Testament. I want to pull on it because anytime we pick up one of these Old Testament songs, well, our songs are better than their songs. Our songs are newer than their songs. Our songs look to a better salvation than their songs look to. So often as we grab their songs, they have a richer and a fuller meaning for us than they had for them. Now, there is overlap. Uh, there are old sections of our songs which could have been said at any time since the world began. I'm going to use two bits of Revelation, chapter 4 and chapter 5 here. There are old sections that could have been said at any time since the world began, like, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's what we've been reading in Psalm 33. The songs we still sing to God, our creator, who still rules every aspect of the creation in which we live. But our new songs come after a greater salvation event. The Old Testament looks back to Exodus and the victories in battle. Psalm 33 has confidence in the Lord's ability to protect and care for his people no matter what nation plots and plans against them. Verse 19 delivers, verse 19 glimpses a delivery from death of being kept alive. But in the end, all those Old Testament battles and victories, they point to a battle which is not against flesh and blood, which is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A battle that has been won by Jesus, by Christ who has defeated those powers, who has abolished death, who has brought life and immortality to light. So this side of his coming and life and death and resurrection and ascension, our new songs speak more clearly about God and his rescue plan. We point one another to the resurrected Lord Jesus who suffered for us, to his Father who sent him and raised him and seated him above all powers and authorities. That great salvation demands a new song. Praise for the same Lord, but with clearer sight of who he is and what he's done. The song we hear from one another and sing to the Lord Jesus is worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth 
The song we declare to one another is, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We honor, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father together when we say and hear one another say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed praise you and give you glory. We praise you that you are the God who is sovereignly in control of all things, for you made all things. You made them effortlessly, that you control it all, that you control it all for the good of your people. Thank you that you are able to save that there is nothing and no one beyond your sight, no power greater than yours. Father, we thank you that in the ancient victories, we glimpse Christ's victory, Christ's victory over Satan and his powers, Christ's victory over death and judgment. Father, please capture our heads and hearts with the great salvation you have brought in your Son that we might declare your glory, that we might encourage one another with the truth concerning you and your Son. And Father, please do work in us that we would through all our days keep trusting in in your Son who suffered for us. And Father, please bring us home in him. Amen.